0: All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Hey, how's everyone doing? I, I got no complaints. It's super nice here in Anywhere USA. I mean, it's a little warm, so the window is open, and so we've got a little background uh, car action going on, maybe a dog will bark. Who knows? It's daytime. I never record in the daytime, but that's okay. We're doing it today. Um, it's almost back to school time out here, which at least for me, it's uh, cause it feels like my kids just got out of school for summer break, but whatever, you know, I guess they say time flies when you're having fun. Hey, you guys, my dad really wanted me to thank you all again for allowing him to talk to you last episode. And I too would really like you all, um, to feel my thanks and I also would like to thank you again for allowing this to be our space for that episode and if you would continue to share 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 the podcast especially episode number 50 from the bottom of our hearts we would be so indebted to you thank you so much you guys you are you you guys are all exceptional um with that being said Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout-out time. What it do, Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, El Paso, Mesquite, Austin, and Plano, Texas. Always great to see you, Los Angeles, Fontana, Bakersfield, Sacramento, Santa Ana, and Redding, California. Welcome back, Savannah, Atlanta, Augusta, Suwanee, Canton, and Stone Mountain, Georgia. I see you, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, uh, Susquehanna- Yes. Quakertown, Erie, and Altoona, Pennsylvania. How are you, Chicago, Schaumburg, Deerfield, Elgin, and Crystal Lake? Oh, and Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Always a pleasure to see you, Detroit, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, Gross Point, Pontiac, and Flint, Michigan. Listeners in Portugal, Thailand, Greece, United Kingdom, Ireland, Nigeria, U.S. Virgin Islands, thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Per the usual, all of my references can be found in the description box below. So, as I kind of talked about it, you know, before, our last episode was more so like a public service announcement presented by my father in hopes that the negligence at the hands of pharmaceuticals and lack of information and guidelines for medical professionals whilst caring for the 10% of type 2 diabetics who are essentially being murdered by the drugs intended to keep them alive and acknowledging that the treatment for them is not beneficial for all suffering from the disease. For today's episode, I selected a case that has, like, I know I say this a lot, but, hear me out, a lot of shit shakes me. But, I was alive for this one. So, this one really bothered the shit out of me, because I really remember this one. Ooh. So, for nine days, in 1994, Americans were deceived by a murderer. Susan Lee Vaughn was born September 26, 1971, in the small South Carolina town of Union, to Harry Ray and Linda Vaughn 11 years earlier in 1960 Linda was 17 years old and pregnant when she met and then married 20 year old Harry Ray when Linda gave birth to her first child a son she named Michael Harry raised the boy as his own a couple of years later the two had a son named Scotty finally ran- rounding off their trio with their only daughter Susan. While Linda was a homemaker, Harry Ray was first a firefighter and then transitioned to textile work at one of the town's mills. As children, they huddled together watching their parents' marriage implode. Be it insecurity or not, Harry con- you know continually berated Linda, insisting she was an adulteress. He drank heavily and the fighting in the home was frightening. The home environment was toxic so much so that michael attempted self-harm shortly before his baby sister started preschool (sighs) following michael's attempt he was treated at various facilities for his mental health meanwhile at the at the the vaughn home young susan was described as someone who observed by some who observed the little girl as shy unusual and sad Susan would often stare off into the distance as if she was no longer there. Despite the family's deep seated dysfunction, Susan had an extremely tight bond with her father, lighting up like a Christmas tree every time she saw him. In 1977, after 17 years, tumultuous years, let me not mince words here, Linda finally found the courage to bring her unhealthy marriage to an end harry of course was heartbroken and crestfallen his already heavy drinking increased five weeks after their marriage was legally dissolved so this was the beginning of january 1978 harry and linda would have their final fight after breaking a window to gain entry into linda's home the two got into a heated argument because bro you know what the fuck you're no longer married and you broke into your ex-wife's house and she was fearful for her life, rightfully so, instead of I don't know ringing the doorbell or calling, which Yes, I know he probably tried all of those things too, but <clears throat> so Linda notified the police when officers arrived. they witnessed Harry striking Linda. Harry was afraid of what he'd do to Linda if he was allowed to go free and begged and pleaded with officers to arrest him instead. Harry was treated like what happened between he and Linda was their business. Boys will be boys. Give him a slap on the wrist. um, Where he could go sleep off his obviously drunken behavior. Harry instead shot himself in the stomach. And it was... um, he, He lived until he got to the hospital. And then he died of his wounds so susan was left with memories of her father that she you know amassed in her short life a tape recording of his voice and his coin collection to remember him two weeks following harry's death linda married local businessman christian coalition member and republican party council member beverly bev russell Hungry for approval from Bev over the years, Susan began competing with her mother for Bev's attention, approval, and acceptance. At 13, Susan's mental health took a turn and she made her first suicide attempt. Shortly before Susan was to turn 16, the father-daughter relationship between Susan and Bev changed one night in 1987 this is literally like shortly really shortly before her birthday okay um one of bev's daughters slept over at the residence and i believe at the time it was like a three bedroom and susan had one of the bedrooms because she lived there full time because you know linda was there and so She had to give her bedroom up to her stepsister when she spent the night. And so therefore Susan was going to sleep on the living room couch. When she was ready to go to bed, instead of saying, hey Bev, I'm ready to go, no, no, so you should go to your office, your bedroom, anywhere but here. She crawled into his lap like a toddler and began to drift off, drift off. And the way that it's described, I feel like she had her head in his lap because then as she began falling asleep, Bev began fondling her breasts and then placed her hand on his genitals, which is really, yeah, I don't have my dumpster juice. (laughs) It's daytime, so I don't have my dumpster juice alert, but yeah, know that I am seething. Susan would later say that she pretended to be asleep to see how far Bev was going to go with her, which is also very alarming and disturbing. Susan told her mother, as well as her high school guidance counselor, about her interaction with Bev. The Department of Social Services conducted an investigation into Susan's allegations of abuse by Bev. While under investigation, Bev was forced to leave the family home for a time, and Linda sought family counseling for herself, Bev, and Susan. However, the family would only attend a few sessions. Bev returned to the home, and his sexual abuse of Susan would continue. In March of 1988, Susan again reported Bev's sexual abuse, and when confronted by Linda, Bev didn't deny it. The most pressing issue for Linda was keeping up appearances in the community. So she was able to convince Susan not to press charges against Bev and the entire situation was swept under the rug because we just don't talk about things like that. Keeping up appearances was a big deal for the Russell family. So Susan had no choice but to continually excel as a student. Like, and when I say that, I mean that besides her inherent need for constant acceptance and being told that she was wonderful and amazing there was also the outward appearances that the family presented to the community so she was back up against a wall all the way Nonetheless, she excelled in school. While in high school, she was in the Beta Club for students who maintained a 3.0 GPA and higher. She was also in the National Honor Society. Susan was also in the Math, Spanish, and Red Cross clubs. She was also president of the Junior Civitan Club, performing volunteer work in the community, which included volunteering with the annual Special Olympics. I did that. I loved it. Um, And being a candy striper, I mean, working with the Special Olympics, not being a Junior Civiton club member. I didn't even know how to say it. Could you tell? Anywho, she was also a candy striper from 1986 to 1988 with her best friend Donna Garner at Wallace Thompson Hospital. Susan was soaring high by her senior year, like with all of her activities. It came to no surprise when she was voted Friendliest Female. in the the yearbook along with all the other senior superlatives while everyone thought susan a lot of people most of the people thought of susan as being cheerful helpful outgoing down to earth all of susan's busy making was a way to hide what was happening within the russell home i.e the abuse and in her private life Susan's junior year in high school, she began working for the grocery store chain Winn Dixie as a cashier. After six months, she was promoted to head cashier, and then shortly thereafter, bookkeeper. Soon, Susan began an affair with a married coworker as well as dating another coworker. It wasn't long before Susan was pregnant and had an abortion. While Susan's married lover learned she was playing the field with another co-worker, he abruptly ended the relationship, which sent Susan into a tailspin. Just as she had when she was 13, 17-year-old Susan attempted to end her life. After spending a week in the hospital following her suicide attempt, she was given a month to recuperate. When Susan returned to work, she and classmate co slash co-worker david smith they got kind of close they started talking more hanging out and eventually they started dating and or that was probably roughly around the summer of 1990 similarly to susan david too had an intense upbringing david's father charles david smith was a navy vet who served two tours in Vietnam, and his mother Barbara, a devout Jehovah's Witness, who sheltered her children immensely and hindered them from participating in many childhood pastimes as they were perceived as going against their religious beliefs. When David was two years old, his family relocated from Michigan to South Carolina. Charles worked for a clothing store in downtown Union before becoming a manager at Walmart. Barbara worked part-time as a di- at a dialysis clinic, as well as for a lawyer, while studying to become a nurse. As David was growing up with his siblings, he, like Susan, witnessed the arguing and disagreements among his parents. Charles David disagreed with Barbara about her religious beliefs and practices, namely distancing the family from the community, because they weren't like the Smiths. Um, who, you know, were living in town and all this other stuff. They were, she had him kind of off in the cut a little bit, like in the country. Eventually, Charles David and David both would reject Barbara's religion and David would end up moving into his great grandmother's home, which was next door to his parents. At the time, David's older brother, Danny, was also living with great grandmother Malone. While a teen, David maintained decent grades in school and was 16 when he began working part-time at Winn-Dixie as a stock clerk. David was described as having a strong work ethic, which also translated to the project he decided to undertake on his great-grandmother's property. For years, David worked long and hard renovating a small home located on his great-grandmother's property in hopes of one day making it his own. While David initially viewed his relationship with Susan as being a casual one, the two decided to get married after Susan became pregnant. Although the pregnancy and marriage wasn't planned, nor was the timing perfect, David was confident he would be able to provide a home for his soon-to-be family. Most young people in Union got married and began their families after graduation, so they had it in the bag. It also helped that they both worked at Winn-Dixie And, you know, they were making decent money between the two of them. So they wouldn't be completely reliant on the help of their family, unlike, you know, a lot of other young couples starting out. When Linda and Bev learned of Susan's pregnancy, they were upset. David and Susan had no college education, and David was not from the same social and economic circles as the Russells. Those thoughts didn't deter David, who had plans of completing the renovations and moving Susan into the home on his great grandmother's property. And Susan seemed okay with his plans initially until Linda and Bev saw the home themselves. The couple was able to come to a compromise, however, and um, Susan would end up moving into David's great grandmother's home after the wedding on march 4th 1991 the smith family took a big l david's 22 year old brother danny died from complications of his crohn's disease although the smith family was in deep mourning over the loss of david's brother danny the russells continued to press forward with the plans to have susan and david's wedding as soon as possible Linda didn't want to run the risk of Susan's pregnancy showing if they prolonged the nuptials, although she was only like a couple months pregnant at the time. On March 15th, 11 days following Danny's death, 20-year-old David and two-month-pregnant 19-year-old Susan were wed at the United Methodist Church of Bogansville. Three months following the death of Danny Smith and the wedding of David, his father, Charles David consumed with grief, attempted suicide. Fortunately, Susan found her father-in-law lying on the floor following his overdose of pills and got him rushed to the hospital. Charles David's suicide attempt was the final straw in his marriage. And he and Barbara like completely like went their separate ways. Um, Divorcing. While hospitalized and being treated for depression, Charles David would meet his second wife, Sue. This first pregnancy would be smooth sailing for Susan, and on October 10, 1991, Michael Daniel Smith was born. After giving birth, Susan enrolled in various classes at the Union branch of the University of South Carolina. From the very beginning, there were problems in the young couple's marriage from Linda's unsolicited advice and unannounced visits and meddling and butting in to Susan and David's differences of opinions on the couple's finances, as well as their working relationship with David being Susan's boss. The pressure in the Smith home was a lot following their first wedding anniversary in 1992 the couple took a little break and susan started seeing a former flame slash co-worker when david learned of susan's affair he was enraged excuse me though they tried to work things out again they'd quickly separate again in the summer of 1992 with susan and michael retreating to linda and bev's home On and off again throughout the summer and fall, in November 1992, Susan became pregnant with she and David's second child. The following month, after deciding to reconcile again, Susan told David that the only way their relationship could last would be if they moved into a better home. So the family of three would move into a quaint little ranch-style home on Tony Road, I believe it was. Uh, Shortly thereafter and her parents were so generous they provided the couple with the down payment for the home unlike Susan's pregnancy with Michael this second pregnancy was cumbersome she was said to have felt fat and ugly during this time. Aside from constantly feeling unattractive and physically unappealing, Susan began to withdraw from David, no longer even sharing anecdotes about their son Michael's day-to-day while David was at work. Feeling shut out and lacking affection from Susan, David began an extramarital relationship with coworker Tiffany Moss. While Susan wasn't necessarily interested in David, she was also jealous. So there were numerous occasions when she would pop up at Winn Dixie, hooting, hollering, and raising saying because David was speaking to women, be it innocent or, you know, in the respective Tiffany, you know, not. But huh. on August 5th, yes, two days ago, on August 5th, 1993. After an emergency C-section, Alexander Tyler Smith was born. During this time, David and Susan agreed to stay together as she recuperated and adjusted to being a new mother of two. They recognized that they were no longer invested in being married and separated. Also, during this time, Susan decided to leave her job at Winn-Dixie because, you know, I'm not working there with you and your new boo. And she was hired at, I believe it's Cosno, it might be Conso, products as a bookkeeper. It wouldn't be long before Susan became assistant to the executive sec- secretary of the company's president. While Susan thoroughly enjoyed her work and responsibilities and the duties doled out to her, you know, like booking hotels and catering for events and things of that nature um she also enjoyed her new friendships with her new co-workers and she also became quite taken by one of the company president's sons a gentleman who was named whose name is tom finley who was head of the company's graphic arts department Susan often spent time with her co-workers at Union's new and only bar, Hickory Nuts, when she wasn't working or with her children. Around the same time, Susan decided to file for divorce from David. She began casually dating Tom Finley. and the months the two dated, they spent their time going to lunch and to the movies. At times, Tom would invite Susan to his cottage as well as several parties Tom threw at his father's estate. Ever vigilant and wanting to save his family, David tried throughout the spring and summer of 1994 to put his uh, his family with Susan back together. David had broken up with Tiffany, and Susan had broken up with Tom. David had moved back into the home he'd shared with Susan and the children, but it would be short-lived. In July of 1994, Susan told David under no uncertain terms she no longer wanted to be his wife. Despite David's protest that Michael and Alexander would benefit best from living in a home with both parents, he respected Susan's wishes. David rented a two-bedroom apartment a couple of miles away from Susan's house and quickly furnished the home for himself and his two boys, buying a bed, crib, and toys for their room. In the beginning of September, Susan and David had established a routine and and she began dating Tom Finley again. While Tom would have preferred to keep things casual with Susan, he was annoyed by her neediness and possessive nature towards him. Sure, Susan was a great girl, but she wanted way more than Tom was willing to give her, so he called things off shortly after they'd gotten back together. On September 21st, David was served divorce papers on the grounds of adultery. And a month later, the papers were filed in the Union County Court. (sighs) And now it's time to buckle up because this is when everything began to go to left field and just start sucking. So it began on October 17th when Susan received a typed letter from Tom Now they called this, they referred to this throughout the trial and in the media as a dear John letter. (laughs) Boy. Oh boy. So Tom was telling her in this letter that Susan was a wonderful woman. She was how um, as wonderful as a woman she was. He felt that there were too many red flags and respect big props for him recognizing that there were things about, her and the way that the relationship was moving that were not aligned with him okay so there were many red flags and aspects of susan's life that were not in sync with his wants and needs including the fact that she was a mother of two small children who she was also not from you know the same social or economic circles he came from and also remained in Tom told Susan how impressed he was, how snarky, oh thank you, how impressed he was by her attending college part-time and encouraging her to continue with her studies. Sidebar, it's literally the punch on the shoulder and I like you a lot too sport and the pat on the head. It's cold-blooded. I did that when I was a teenager. That's so fucked up. So, Tom told Susan that the final straw for him was how she behaved in the hot tub with one of his married friends. Tom described the humiliation he felt witnessing Susan and his married friend heavily petting and kissing whilst nude in the hot tub. He told her that if she ever expected to marry a nice man, she ought to behave like a nice girl and drop the motherfucking mic. Boom. So. <clears throat> yeah whoo following the dear john letter susan's divorce was filed in court you know like i said on the 21st on october 23rd desperate and not willing to accept tom's breakup this is a sunday susan drove to tom's cottage while she sat with him trying to win him back she confided in tom that she and her stepfather bev Had been in a sexual relationship from the time that she was 15 and not ending until the spring of 1994. While she was hoping that Tom would be sympathetic and want to take her back, instead he was in shock and mortified at her omission, opting to put distance between them. By Tuesday, October 25th, Susan had begun to unravel After completing the morning routine of caring for the boys and getting them off to daycare, Susan drove to work with the intention of mending things with super ice cold Tom. Although both were a part of the overall co-worker lunch crew at a restaurant that was like roughly like 10 minutes or so outside of town in Buffalo, um... You would think that she was not even in the room. While everyone chirped in conversation, the usually boisterous Susan sat quietly sulking as Tom avoided her gaze. After lunch, Susan asked her supervisor if she could go home early. And when she was asked, you know, hey girl, what's wrong? Susan confided that she was in love with a man who didn't love her back. When her supervisor asked who the man was, Susan told her that it was Tom Finley and that the relationship could never be because of Susan's children. Now, she was told she could go home, but instead of going home, Susan sat at her desk. She was like paralyzed in thought, the wheels in her brain turning and churning as she tried to figure out a different angle with Tom. An hour later, at 2.30, Susan picked up the phone on her desk and called Tom. Susan asked if they could speak outside in private. She told him that David had been making defamatory threats against her. When Tom asked what the threats were, she told him that David was threatening to accuse her of tax fraud with the IRS, as well as carrying on an extramarital affair with Tom's father. Now, after shaking off the grossness of what Susan had told Tom, and inf- uh, Tom informed Susan that whilst their relationship would remain fully intact platonically, they would never, like under no uncertain terms, have any further sexual contact or an intimate relationship with one another. At 4.30 in At 4.30, in another desperate attempt to regain Tom's affections, she showed up to a scheduled photo shoot, attempting to return his Auburn University sweatshirt she'd borrowed. Instead of taking the sweatshirt back, Tom told Susan to hold on to it. Deflated but not deterred, Susan picked up the boys from daycare, then drove to Hickory Nuts when she saw... Uh, the marketing manager from work Sue Brown in the parking lot after confiding in Sue that she'd like un- 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 that she'd unloaded a bunch of lies to Tom on Tom she asked Sue to go back to work with her and watch the boys so that she could apologize to Tom she admitted to Sue that she'd only lied to Tom to see what his reaction would be and the two women and boys left Hickory Nuts parking lot in susan's car and headed back to work it was five thirty. now when susan appeared in tom's doorway of his office he was super upset with her and he immediately escorted her out of his office crestfallen susan returned to sue and the boys in the parking lot susan told sue that she might as well end it all As the two women stood outside of Susan's car talking, her manager, Sandy, was leaving the building for the night. And Sandy felt manipulated by Susan, who had asked to go home like four hours earlier, yet there she was still at work. Susan dropped Sue off at Hickory Nuts and headed home with the boys. Susan was going stir-crazy inside of her home wanting and hoping that Tom was just being hard on her or playing hard to get, you know, like he'll, he'll come around. Susan called Hickory nuts and asked to speak to Sue, who she knew would be dining with other coworkers, including Tom. And when Sue picked up the call, Susan asked if Tom had asked about her during the course of their evening. When Sue told Susan, no, susan hung up the phone and wrote a letter saying that she'd never felt so sad and lonely in all her life among other things afterwards susan dressed michael and alexander in white and secured them in their car seats it was roughly 8 p.m susan drove her mazda aimlessly for over an hour At about 9 p.m., Mrs. Shirley McLeod was startled by blood-curdling wails on her porch. When she turned on her front porch light, she found a hysterical young woman clad in a gray Auburn University sweatshirt begging for help. Susan exclaimed, Help me! He's got my kids! He's got my car! After escorting Susan inside the home, Susan told Shirley she'd been carjacked by <clears throat> a black man and her children were in the back seat. The McLeods called 911 immediately. After she'd calmed down, she was able to relay that she was at a red light when a black man jumped into her car and insisted she drive. Susan said that she, that after asking her assailant why he was doing this, he told her to shut up and drive or he would kill her. Susan stated that after driving for four miles or so, the carjacker made her stop in the middle of the road just beyond the sign for John D. Long Lake and pushed her out of the car at gunpoint. When Susan asked if she could take her children with her, the carjacker said there wasn't enough time and drove off. After recounting the carjacking, Susan called her parents and David, who rallied around her at the McLeod home. Immediately, officers began their investigation and searched for the young Smith children. Susan told the sheriff, Howard Wells, Michael was wearing a white jogging suit and Alexander was wearing white and red sh- a white and red striped outfit. Eventually, the Russell and Smith families would leave the McLeod home and rally at the Russell family home. As David drove Susan to her parents' home, She told him there was a possibility that Tom would show up at her parents' house, and she hoped it wouldn't cause a conflict between the two men. David thought it was a wild-ass statement to make while they were actively living every parent's worst nightmare, but he opted to keep his mouth shut. Although the Russell home was, like, overflowing with a steady stream of visits, from friends, family, neighbors, local ministers, and Susan's co workers, she was more preoccupied with the hopes that Tom would be one of her visitors. Although she did briefly speak with him on the phone once following the children's disappearance, Tom refused to visit Susan. Sheriff Wells arranged for Susan to meet with the police. Uh, with a forensic sketch artist, as well as contacted SLED, which is the South Carolina um, Law Enforcement Division, and deployed searches for the boys. While Susan met with the forensic sketch artist, and his name is Mr. Pichelle, uh <clears throat> she described her assailant as an African-American man who appeared to be around 40 years old, wearing a dark ski cap, dark-colored shirt, jeans, and lightweight plaid jacket. The forensic artist thought it was off that Susan gave such a vague physical description of her assailant, yet provided great detail about other aspects and smaller details. Ah, oh, Laysai. When the sketch was completed and submitted, it was circulated throughout the local media um union and surrounding areas and along with images of both the children and Susan's missing Mazda you know like that that whole mashup when word of this broke the Adam Walsh Center stepped in offering their assistance with the search as well Uh, it was later discussed and decided that Um, on the evening of October 26th to make a plea to the media for the safe return of the children. The lead sled investigator and the executive director for the South Carolina chapter of the Adam Walsh Center both agreed it would be instrumental in helping solve the boy's disappearance. While David was shy and nervous, he agreed to do anything to help bring his children home. Initially, a local news story covered by local radio stations and the Union Daily Times newspaper. Um, The story gained traction and became national news. Yellow ribbons hung around trees and doors as a community of Union banded together in their hopes for the boys' safe return. For their first statement, Susan and David stood in front of the Union County Sheriff's Department heartbroken david's voice trembled as he composed himself and made the following statement quote, to whoever has our boys we ask that you please don't hurt them and bring them back we love them very much i plead to the guy please return our children to us safe and unharmed everywhere i look i see their play toys and pictures they are both wonderful children I don't know how else to put it, and I can't imagine life without them." Following the first press conference, David and Susan returned inside, where Susan would be interviewed for six hours. The following day, both David and Susan were administered polygraph tests by the FBI. While David's results showed zero deception, and that he had zero knowledge of what happened to his children, Susan's test was inconclusive, and she showed the greatest level of deception when asked if she knew where her children were. Immediately, Susan was told that she had shown signs of deception. She in turn told David she didn't think that she did well with the test, and that she felt as though they might be doubting her heroine tale, y'all. Having eliminated David, he was only polygraph tested once. Susan, on the other hand, was given polygraph tests every time she was interviewed. Investigators found numerous inconsistencies in each of Susan's accounts of the events of October 25th. Susan stated that she called her mother and asked if she could visit with her mother but her mother had plans she stated that the boys were fussy while she made them pizza for pizza for dinner she also said that Michael wanted to go to Walmart and she acquiesced Susan said that Michael also wanted to visit her best friend's fiance and had made arrangements to do so Susan said that there were no other cars on the road when she came to a stop at the red light on Monarch. There were no witnesses or evidence that Susan or the boys, however, were at Walmart, and the light at the intersection at Monarch only turned red if there was a car on the cross street. Investigators quietly continued to chip away at Susan's story, which infuriated david who felt that investigators should have been focusing more of their energy on recovering the children while speaking with investigators david told them about the numerous paramours and susan's past including her recent breakup with tom finley when sled agent call david Who had been called down from Columbia to conduct the interviews asked Susan if the breakup with Tom had anything to do with the children's disappearance. She told him, quote, no man would make me hurt my children. They were my life. In another interview later that same day, Susan was confronted about her claims of taking the children to Walmart. When Agent Caldwell asked Susan if the children's fussiness was why she killed them, Susan slammed her fist on the table and shrieked, You son of a bitch, how could you think that? As she hurriedly rushed out of the interrogation room, she shrieked again, I can't believe you think that. Both Agent Caldwell and the FBI agent who administered Susan's October 27th polygraph test noted that from time to time, Susan would whimper and make crying sounds. However, she never shed any actual tears. Armed with all of these puzzle these odd puzzle pieces, Sheriff Wells and Agent Logan reached out to the FBI's behavioral sciences unit the unit was able to provide a comprehensive profile of the characteristics displayed in homicidal mothers. (sighs) The profile stated that homicidal mothers are customarily in their 20s, come from or currently live in poverty or lower income situations, are undereducated. There's a history of physical and or sexual abuse. Uh, They possess depressed or suicidal tendencies, having been slighted or shunned by a lover, especially near the timing of their, of the killings. There are also at times enmeshed relationships between mother and child where boundaries are blurred to investigators. Susan ticked off most of these descriptive boxes by day three of the search. For the children, divers were deployed to John D. Long Lake, searching the first 100 feet of the murky water to no avail. On the fourth day of the investigation, the Union Daily Times ran an article that put in print what many in the community were whispering about. Susan's story of an African-American man carjacking her and abducting her children wasn't quite gelling as it should have. Many, especially in the African-American community, felt it was outlandish that any black man would be foolish enough to abduct two white children. Like, there's no way the trio would go unnoticed. (sighs) When Mark Kloss, father of slain daughter Polly Kloss, and founder of the Mark Kloss Foundation for Children, I believe we talked about Mark Kloss in a previous case, uh, they lobby hard for stricter and stronger laws to keep violent repeat offenders incarcerated. And renowned cognitive graphic artist, Gene Boynton, made several attempts to meet with Susan and David to get a better, more accurate rendering of the assailant. They were told no, which is unheard of. When Mark and Gene, like they traveled to South Carolina, they pulled up many times And there was a family member who acted as, uh, the spokesperson. And every time they would try to meet with Susan and especially Jean, uh, they were told no. So when they left and headed back, uh, headed back West to California, Mark thought that Susan was guilty of hiding the children amidst some sort of, like, custodial situation with David. Like, he totally felt that she was guilty of something. Because every other parent would be chomping at the bit and jumping at the opportunity to get a more accurate rendering of the person who has absconded with their children. So, who? There was that. On the sixth day, there was hope. As Seattle police notified the investigation, a 14-month-old child was found abandoned by a man driving a car with South Carolina license plates near a motel. But as quickly as there was hope, it was immediately dashed when the child was found to not be Alexander. With all of the various law enforcement agencies concluding, unanim- concluding unanimously that they felt that Susan was their only suspect, they began to figure out how to get her to confess to the location of the boys and what she did to them. Recognizing Susan was a master manipulator, they decided the best way to apply the amount uh, the best way to apply the amount of pressure needed to obtain a confession was to unleash the media on her. The sheriff appeared in what now amounts to soundbites, where he delivered purposefully crafted press releases to the community and the national media, uh, conducted around-the-clock coverage as well as interviews with David and Susan. America's Most Wanted even traveled to Union, South Carolina to tape a segment covering the boys' abduction. Bright and early on the morning of November 3rd, 1994, the Russell home was extra active. David and Susan would use the Russell family living room as the backdrop of their three network morning show interviews. On CBS this morning, when asked if, quote, all of the truth had been told, Susan said she could see from outsiders it appeared that she was involved however she could never do anything to harm her children when asked the pointed question if susan had any involvement in their disappearance she protested saying she and the lord knew the truth and then she like put her hand over her heart and it was a whole production she proclaimed that quote i believe it takes a very sick and emotionally unstable person to uh be able to take two beautiful children like that to be able to keep them from their parents to keep them from where they do belong. Um, I, 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 I can't imagine wh- why a- anyone would want to do anything such as that, And quote. While David asked the nation to keep their family and most importantly, their sons in their prayers. Susan nodded in agreement. When David was asked if he believed Susan, he said, quote, yes, I believe my wife completely. By that afternoon, Susan and David had canceled their afternoon interview with the Union Daily Times and Susan like privately met with investigators again. Worn down by the constant presence of media and pressure, Susan finally caved in a tiny room in the family center of the first baptist church susan sitting across from one susan was sitting across from sheriff wells and like they were sitting so close that like their knees were touching and he confronted susan with all of the facts that he had as well as you know couple of tools that they employ to coax you know a confession which is totally legal he told her that her varied details didn't add up. He told her that he knew the story of the black carjacker was a lie. After telling her it was time to tell the truth, Susan repeated that she was so ashamed and asked the sheriff for his gun so she could kill herself. When Sheriff Wells asked why she would want to kill herself, she told him, quote, "'You don't understand. My children aren't all right.'" After sobbing and unloading her life story, which included her various sexual relationships and her abortion, she was allowed to write out her confession, knowing that although it would most likely be very self-serving in its accounts, it was the only way to keep her talking. Investigators stood by as Susan's teenage script of loops and hearts to replace the word filled two pages. In those pages, she spoke of how suicidal she was on the night of October 25th, how she'd planned on killing herself, but thought it was selfish to abandon her boys, so they'd have to come with her. Susan stated that as she coasted in neutral down the boat ramp of John D. Long Lake, she panicked and placed the car in park three separate times before finally stepping out of her Mazda and finally releasing the emergency brake allowing the blackness of John D Long Lake to swallow her car and children susan continually stated how much she loved her sons and that after the car launched into the lake she wished immediately that she could have stopped her action and saved her children susan said that she ran for help as she ran for help she concocted her alibi Armed with these new details, Sheriff Wells assembled the dive crew and made another attempt to locate Susan's car. She was not yet, like, under arrest until we got a confession and we got these babies back. This time, divers made the grim discovery that they were hoping they wouldn't. After Susan told them exactly where to look, roughly 120 feet away from the boat launch, divers located Susan's upside-down Mazda. When the second set of divers arrived with lights better equipped for the murkiness of John D. Long Lake, they identified one of the Smith children's tiny hands was resting against the window of the car. That evening, Sheriff Wells informed the public in a press conference that Susan Smith had been arrested for the murders of Michael and Alexander. While the community sat in disbelief, local religious figures as well as family members of Susan and David came together um, especially driven to heal the wounds Susan caused when she accused an African-American man. Scotty, Susan's brother, told the Union Daily Times, quote, We apologize to the black community of Union and everywhere and hope you don't believe any of the rumors that this was ever a racial issue. The yellow ribbons that hung around Union were replaced with light blue and white ribbons to remember the boys and a shrine for the boys was erected at the the boat launch on John D. Long Lake, quickly filling with candles, toys, flowers, and pictures. On November 6, 1994, thousands gathered in union to say goodbye to Michael and Alex, who were laid to rest together in the same white and gold gilded casket. The outpouring of condolences globally and flowers sent took up four rooms of the funeral home with Susan facing the death penalty for the murder of both of her sons Bev and Linda mortgaged their home to obtain the best defense they could for Susan and while the wheels of justice grind slowly both the prosecution and defense needed to build their case Susan was held on 24-hour suicide watch and initially underwent psychological and physical evaluations For the eight months Susan awaited her trial, she was under said suicide watch, prison guards checking in on her every 15 minutes. Three weeks after Susan was arrested, she had asked David to visit her. Heavy with grief and a need for answers, David agreed to visit Susan at the Women's Correctional Facility in Columbia, which is where she had been transferred to from the Union County Jail. As the two spoke, Susan apologized repeatedly for killing the the couple's children, but was unable to say why she killed the boys. While David initially felt sorry for Susan and her plight, his pity would turn to rage as discoveries were made throughout the investigation. Prior to the January filing of the intent to seek the death penalty against Susan, David had learned that Susan told investigators exactly where to locate her car in the lake. He also learned that when Susan's car was pulled from the lake, the lights of the vehicle came on. David came to the conclusion that Susan intentionally left the car's lights on to watch the car as it sank below the lake surface. He felt his wife was so desperate to win Tom Finley back and hide her affair with Tom's father, she premeditatedly murdered their children. And for that, he wanted her blood. He wanted her head on a pike. He wanted the death penalty. On January 16th, 1995, the intent to seek the death penalty was filed and she was eligible for the death penalty because the crimes committed were at one time and against people under the age of 11. So because she committed two crimes at once and also committed them against minors under the age of 11, she was eligible for the death penalty. To avoid issues on January 27th, the judge issued a gag order against the release of any prejudicial materials that had not been presented to the court. Now, unlike the highly publicized and gavel-to-gavel coverage of the O.J. Simpson trial, which was happening, happening, you know, in tandem in Los Angeles, Judge William Howard was not willing to roll the dice in South Carolina with the Susan Smith trial banning cameras in the courtroom. Susan would be diagnosed by Dr. Seymour Halleck as having a dependent personality disorder, a genetic predisposition for depression that only crops up when she feels alone or that she is abandoned he found that she is only depressed in those times and it's only when she's depressed that she is suicidal he found that Susan's depression was uh, most likely began as a child and the prosecution was would also have psychological evaluations conducted on Susan as they prepared for trial In May 1995, David and Susan's divorce was finalized. In the divorce, David was given the Mazda that was fished out of John D. Long Lake and the children's clothes and toys were divided equally between David and Susan. David would end up having the car completely totaled after the trial completely was done with. (sighs) After being found mentally competent to stand trial and no change of venue was requested. Susan's trial began on July 18th, 1995. However, the first day was filled with excitement. There was a bomb threat that was received, forcing the court to be evacuated. The man who called the threat was quickly apprehended and arrested. Due to the disruption, opening statements were heard on July 19th. Um, that's also when we had our first juror who was swapped out for an alternate because it was found that she had credit card fraud and she didn't disclose um the state told jurors that susan lied and manipulated the community special special prosecutor keith Geis, i hope i'm saying that right Told jurors that Susan was calculated and murdered her sons because they stood between her and the relationship she wanted to have with Tom Finley. When the defense addressed the court, Susan was portrayed as a disturbed, childlike person who snapped after a lifetime of sadness and abuse. Throughout the trial, witnesses and experts were called to the stand. Sheriff Wells testified to the small lie he told Susan to obtain her confession. Knowing in his gut that there was no black carjacker and seeing all of the racial pain Susan's claim had placed on the community, and not just the community, realistically, it was nationally. Um, actually, fuck it, statewide. I meant to say statewide. I, I lost my place on the script. Um, I do have friends that lived throughout South Carolina, and I did inquire how... It was during that time. And they said it was hellacious. Um, So they told, you know, they knew. He knew. He knew that she had stirred up a whole crop of shit that was, you know, not cool and was going to form some kind of a rift. And he didn't want to see that. So he told her that he knew that she was not carjacked at the intersection she said she was on because there was an officer conducting surveillance at the intersection. Afterwards, Susan tearfully confessed to the murders of her sons. It wasn't until Susan confessed that he placed her under arrest because he stated he needed confirmation of his suspicions. SLED agent Logan testified to Susan's background and history of abuse in relationships, other agents testified about their initial suspicions of Susan, how they, she made crying noises but never shed tears throughout the investigation. The forensic sketch artist Roy Paschel testified to his skepticism of Susan's description of the carjacker, calling her description vague. Jurors heard from Tom Finley, who described his short relationship with Susan, and his testimony was helpful for both the defense and the prosecution. While it was true he'd broken up with her and had all of these red flags, he had kind words for her. Three of Susan's co-workers testified that Susan stated she wondered what life would be like if she hadn't be- become a young wife and mother. While the prosecution's hands were tied by the judge who denied most of the state's plant case, the final witness they would call was Dr. uh, Conradi, the pathologist who performed Michael and Alexander's autopsies. Due to the horrible decomposition the children underwent being in the lake for nine days, the jury was not allowed to see any photographs from their autopsies, nor were they allowed to hear about the conditions the children's bodies were in um however the uh pathologist was able to testify that when she received the bodies of michael and alexander they were strapped in their car seats and they had no shoes on their feet After two days, the state rested. The defense's approach was to display Susan's deep-seated mental and emotional issues. They never denied Susan was responsible for the murders. They did, however, call into question her mental state and intentions. Uh, They kept going back to her saying that she had intended to kill herself and her letter. All of that stuff. Um, Let's see here. Sorry, I lost my place again so they jurors heard that heard about the various evaluations and tests Susan underwent the details of Susan's sexual abuse and mm, her transference from Bev to another father figure type male sexual relationship with Tom's father with whom she began a sexual relationship as well they claim that Susan panicked concocted a black carjacker because and concocted a black carjacker because she was afraid of what people would think of her if they knew she killed her babies they said that she immediately regretted her actions and she self-preservation kicked in at the time that she released the parking brake and finally in a blocked out mental state saved herself not recognizing what she'd done until it was too late on saturday july 22nd The jurors heard closing arguments for the state solicitor, Tommy Pope said, quote, I submit to you that they were in that car screaming, crying, calling for their father, while the woman who placed them in that car was running up that hill or running up the hill with her hands covering her ears. She used the emergency brake handle like a gun and eliminated her toddlers so that she could have a chance at a life with Tom Finley, the man she loved. Or she said she loved. Defense attorney Judy Clark told jurors that Susan was a mother who showed nothing but unconditional love to her children and quote, there was no malice in what she did, so it was not murder. This is, quote, this is not a case about evil, but a case about sadness and despair. Susan had choices in her life, but her choices were irrational and her choices were tragic. After closing arguments, the judge befuddled and upset the uh, the Smith family and prosecutors by ruling in favor of the defense, allowing the jury to consider the involuntary, uh, the option of involuntary manslaughter. Over the four days of the trial, two alternates were used after like in the final parts of the case right before it was time to hand over be heard, handed over to the jury a juror said that he couldn't be partial because he was related to someone involved in the case so he gets swapped out and now the jury goes and they deliberate for two and a half hours and at 755 the jurors notified the bailiff that they had come to a verdict As Susan stood beside her legal counsel, Judge Howard read the verdict. Susan trembled and cried, shoulders crumpled, as she was found guilty of two counts of first degree murder. Monday, July 24th, the penalty phase began. While Keith Geis reminded jurors, the same jurors that found her guilty two days prior, for quote nine days of deceit and nine days of trickery, Susan hid her hideous deeds. On the other hand, defense attorney David Brooke told the jury, quote, the greatest punishment for Susan Smith is life in prison, not death. Guns blazing, the prosecution presented the video recordings of interviews Susan conducted throughout the search for the children, highlighting all of her levels of deception and lies, as well as her lack of genuine emotion. They called David Smith, who testified, quote, all my hopes, all my dreams, everything that I had planned for the rest of my life ended. I didn't know what to do. Everything I had planned on, my life with my kids was gone. As recess was called, Susan called out, I'm sorry, David. He had no response. The jury was shown a video that showed how long it took for Susan's car to sink and how long it took for the interior of the car to fill with water. The answer is six minutes. They heard about life insurance policies David had obtained for his family while working at Winn-Dixie from the defense, as well as more testimony from doctors, friends, family, and acquaintances who spoke to Susan's life and emotional issues. Bev Russell even took the stand to admit his faults in how Susan turned out due to his years of abuse. On July 27th, the jury deliberated for a second time. After two and a half hours, they came to an unanimous decision to sentence susan to 30 years in prison while david was upset or it was 30 years to life in prison while david was upset michael and alexander didn't receive justice because susan wasn't sentenced to death he said he respected the jury's decision david vowed to appear at all of susan's parole hearings um to ensure her life sentence means life and Susan becomes eligible for parole again. Next like I uh next year. And as I said, this past Saturday would have been Alexander's 30th birthday, so what had happened is this. I cannot speak to the rationale behind what she did. Nope, cannot do it. Because while I understand the abuse that she underwent, and the dysfunction that she grew up in i also rec- and the the hypersexuality and all of that stuff. I recognize that she learned to weaponize and manipulate and con people and she learned how to do all of that at a young age so there's that um and she really 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 displayed that when you look at how she behaved in the final days and hours of her children's life when tom finley sent her the dear john letter and called things off with her completely um it was a lot she she wasn't and i can't speak for her i'm not speaking for her what she did was deplorable and it was horrible here's what i can speak on i was 12 years old when this happened And I remember distinctly when the national coverage began, when the first press conference happened. It was the afternoon um, when I saw it. I was a couple I was a few time zones behind. And they said they had a description. And I remember for the first time, in my life, I said, please don't be black. And then they put up the description. And I was like, ugh. And then I was looking at it and I was like, double ugh. That could be anybody. Like, I even at 12 thought, that's some real crude shit. And here we go. Because I remember. Rodney King I told you I remember what happened in Central Park. I obviously remember what happened to Yusuf Hawkins. I remember how crazy that summer had been in 1994 because of O.J. Simpson and the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman so it was kind of electric people were feeling a little bit emboldened and you know a little razzly and dazzly with all of this going on um, nationally and in the media and I just really remember being a kid but picking up on all of that and then I also remember listening To her squawky ass voice, and for the first time in what had happened history, I think I'm gonna actually try to play some of this for you real quick, because I can. I don't want to come off as being someone who is just hating on this woman because I have a lot of dislike. I do because of what she did and all of the hell that she caused. But it was the way that she delivered her pleas for her children. It was not believable even when she was talking. And it gave to me when you're a kid and you're about to get in trouble. So you start making noises and crying to avoid the trouble that you're going to get into. So um let's see here. I You know um the babies were so innocent. They they didn't none of this was called for. None of this was necessary. None of this there was Here's the 911 call. What we need to know
1: something. We, we're trying to ask her now. A, a Mazda Protege. What color was it? it? A burgundy Mazda Protege. Get him going, Pam. I got two kids. Okay. 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 That's a black guy, she said. Okay. Black male? Yes, ma'am. Do you know which way? Do you know which way he went? Daddy, I said you know which way he went. Did she towards. Did he have a gun? Okay. What did he come say? He's trying to get her out of her now. Did he have any weapons, gun, anything? Did he have a That Look, going towards Chester. Did he have a gun or a weapon? Did he say he had a gun? Yeah. He's got a gun. got a gun. Yes, ma'am. Hello? Okay. okay. we are getting him on the way. Okay. Uh, uh, give we me you or not. Uh, Rick McCloud is my name. Do you need us to tell you anything from our yard or anything? Uh, okay. Can you get a tag number out of her? Did Who can you get a tag? house uh, number. It's hard to keep, I mean, have hope, I mean, I, I, after this long a time, I, I just, I just, I just don't feel like, I just, it's just been so long, and I think if they were okay, then they would have been found by now, but it, the hardest part is just not knowing, I mean, you know, and I, my heart just aches, and I miss them so much, I just can't express it, and
0: And it's it's just a tragedy. And, And I just pray and pray and pray that they'll come home safe. It was a tragedy. It was a fucking tragedy. So, hopefully, um, I don't know. Hopefully David Smith, who I I've seen um some interviews with him uh after all of this, a few years passed. He was able to um get a second chance at becoming a father, which is amazing. And so I hope that he and the family are all well. And um that's all I got. Cause this was so un I've got more, you know. This was very selfish, obviously. This was very self serving. Um I absolutely believe that while she may not have intentionally used had racial malice behind identifying her fictitious assailant as a man of color. I think that for her, it just removed uh, further doubt from her claims. Uh, if she said that someone who was the polar opposite of her, a white woman would be a black man um, as the person who, stole the car and took the children um so I really don't believe that she was like I don't know I don't know her heart I don't know her I don't know how she was rolling I don't necessarily feel that she was scared of black people I don't know that so I'm not going to put that narrative out there um but what she did was deplorable as fuck she made it really hard in the streets for a bit for a minute there for people and what's what's interesting is that um you know even throughout all of that the african-american community still came out and rallied around the family during the search and then when it came out that she had lied they absolutely showed up and showed out in support of David Smith and his family, um, I think that okay, so she had always been super competitive with her mother, and we saw that with the relationship with Bev, and we saw that it's ironic how Linda. And Bev Russell's lifestyle was better than or perceived to be better than the life that David Smith had come from. And they voiced their apprehension, you know, about being married and having a baby with a man who wasn't on Susan's social and economic level as a Russell derivative. um. But Tom Finley told Susan that she wasn't on his level. And where Linda was able to snag Bev and get out of being the wife of a mill worker and laborer to becoming the wife of a prominent person in the community. Um, that was kind of the floor plan that was laid out for Susan. So for Susan, who was hella competitive with her mother the next best thing after she's already messed around with Bev, she's already had that level of life, um, would be to obtain a step up further from Bev and get in with the Finley family. But Tom said that she wasn't cut from the same cloth. And so it's just a really weird little cycle of competition and, uh, the, The mental jedi mind fucking between mother and daughter for sure um i'm like i said heartbroken for david smith and all of this because he seemed like a real top-notch guy who was just out here doing his thing i'm not even here to be judging and throwing stones at people's entanglements i don't give a shit about that i don't give a shit about the people's indiscretions behind closed doors what was troublesome to me is that to her the children were dispensable like she could just get rid of them and if she could get rid of them then she could get pity from tom get tom back and then get the life that she wanted and that was a very selfish way of thinking about everything i don't really want to talk about this anymore (laughs) Um, let's get to it. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a longer episode. I told you guys in last week's episode that I have been summoned to potentially do my civic duty. So I wanted to get one or two episodes out for you. And this is like over an hour. So this is a good extendo clip. And if I don't have jury duty, I'll be back again uh, towards the end of the month. With another, you know, lesser known true crime story for you. Until then, here's your beautiful outro music. I will see you soon. Have a great one.